House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, John Hook, thanks for being here. Uh, great to talk to you, uh, Al and Kevin. It's a pleasure, and I love your guys' work, so it's, a, it's an honor to be on the show. Oh, well, thank you. I, I was going to say... Um, you know, of all the things you've done, I mean, you you you're you've been like a Emmy Award winning, and you, you've just done so much for a long time. Um, how did you get on to writing this book and uh, doing the work with Bob Crane? And of course, the book's called "Who Killed Bob Crane," and it's the final close-up. You know, it's um, it's interesting because, like you, as you described, Al, I grew up with Bob Crane. I mean, he was part of my life for my whole life. Um, first on the show when it came on, I knew my older brother was fascinated with it and thought it was hilarious. I was a little young when it, when it first hit the air in 1965 on CBS. But by the time it went off the air, you know, the last few years, I certainly was aware of it. And then it went into heavy, heavy rerun. This is why Bob Crane has kind of been part of our collective existence for 50 years now. I mean, he went into heavy rerun. You could find him every afternoon on some television. So he's been around and part of our life for a long, long time. And then when I headed off to college to Arizona State University, I ended up down here in uh, the summer of 78. I happened to get here a month after Bob Crane was murdered in his apartment in Scottsdale. And my dorm at Arizona State was a mere seven miles away from where Bob Crane was murdered. So this has been with me, and then the trial of John Carpenter, who was accused in the crime, and we'll get into that later, but John Carpenter went on trial in 1994, shortly after I arrived at Channel 10 in Phoenix, Fox 10. He went on trial, but that trial was smothered out by another trial that was going on at the time, O.J. Simpson, which I, I did cover. So I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the trial of Crane, and it kind of vanished in the haze of O.J. Of Simpson. It got lost a little bit in the shuffle. I think it would have been much more high profile had that not occurred at the same time frame. But at any rate, uh, then I interviewed Bob Crane's son, Bob Jr., who wrote the foreword for my book, Who Killed Bob Crane. I interviewed him in March of 2015. And at the conclusion of the interview, I was just struck by uh, a guy who's you know now in his 60s, who still feels every day the pain and loss of his father, who he was very close to. The two were actually sharing an apartment at the, uh, back in California when Bob Crane wasn't out on the road. They were living together when he was murdered. Um, and I just felt that loss, and I felt it was so terribly unfair that the family still had no definitive answers as to who killed Bob Crane. So after that interview, I, it just, I was ruminating about it. it just was, I was marinating in this for several days afterwards, just thinking about it and the, and the how terribly unfair it is that, that they didn't have answers. And I can't tell you how it came to me. I kind of call it a aha moment, but I, I just thought, wow, is that evidence from the case still around, the blood evidence? And if we found it, if it's there, could we possibly retest it and get a definitive answer using DNA science, modern DNA science? Yes. Could we get a definitive answer about who killed Bob Crane? And that's how it started on this path. And the first person I called when I came up with this idea was Bob Crane, Jr. And I said, are you sitting down? I've got an idea. And he said, shoot, what do you got? 
I said, I, Bob, I want to see if we can find the original DNA in the case and retest it. And there was silence on the phone. And I thought I defended him, frankly. And then I also thought, well, maybe it's already been done. He's just kind of sitting there laughing. Yeah, give me something I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But his answer back was, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Do you think that's possible? And I said, Bob, I think it is possible if we find it. But I want you to be okay with it. I want you on board. I want your support if, if we're going to do this. I, I won't do it unless your family feels it's the right thing to do. And he said, yes, do it, do it, do it. And he talked to his mom that night about it. Um, we should talk about um, Bob Crane and his relationships. Um, so Bob Crane Jr., his mother's still alive, and that was his first wife. That's but, right, Ann Terzian. Right. And now he ended up uh, divorcing her after three kids, and he got a second wife who was on the show, wasn't she? Sigrid Valdis. She was the second Fraulein Hilda. The first one was Fraulein Hilga. With a G. <laughs> Crane also Crane also bedded her, by the way. And her uh, husband, as as Bob Crane Jr. told me, basically gave her an ultimatum: get off the show and get away from Crane, or I'm divorcing you. I'm leaving you. And she did. After a season, she was gone. And then uh, Sigrid Valdis came in as Colonel Clink's secretary, Buxom's secretary. Same kind of typecasting. And Crane ended up betting her, too, and ended up marrying her in this case. Wow. Um, so he, let's, let's talk about that. Um, what do we know about Bob Crane, and, and how did he meet um, that friend, John Carpenter, that ended up being on trial for it, even though he, he did get acquitted? That's right. I'm writing a blog right now that's on my website, whokilledbobcrane.com. I'm writing a blog about their relationship because Crane didn't have many close friends, male friends particularly. Um, and Carpenter came onto the scene, introduced to him by Richard Dawson, by the way, who played the role of Peter Newkirk on Hogan's Heroes. So in the mid-60s, uh, Richard Dawson is, is friends with this John Carpenter, who was one of the first national sales, video sales representatives for Sony Electronics. Now remember, home video at this time was industrial, the general public couldn't get it. They didn't even know it existed. But the well-heeled in Hollywood and around the country were starting to get their hands on this primarily industrial technology. And the idea that you could videotape television shows and save them, the idea that you could videotape home movies and keep them and play them on demand was fascinating. And so Dawson had been doing this with Carpenter. Uh, Carpenter had taught him how to use this equipment. Carpenter had taught a lot of famous people how to use this equipment. He claimed to, to teach Elvis Presley how to do it. He claimed to have taught the Smothers Brothers and Red Skelton and others how to use this technology. So the famous were getting their hands on it. Dawson introduces Carpenter to Crane on the set of Hogan's Heroes, and Carpenter and Crane strike up a fast friendship, fueled primarily by their love of electronics, Crane's love of photography and their mutual obsession with women mm -hmm. and picking up women. Well, and there was also uh, rumors that um, Richard Dawson and Bob Crane didn't really care for each other. Uh, do you think that's true? Oh, it's absolutely true. Yeah, no question about it. When when Hogan's Heroes, when the script came to Bob Crane, Bob Crane was 
pretty um, new in the television world. He'd had guest shots on Donna Reed, the Donna Reed show, the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, he was getting some work, but, but he had never been cast as a lead character, and he was looking for that break. And it came in the script of Hogan's Heroes, which he thought was brilliant. Um, but Dawson was much more accomplished on television. And when the script came to him, he thought he should be Colonel Hogan. And they said, no, you're a British guy. That's not going to work. <laughs> oh, wow. But Dawson really harbored that resentment that he was kind of second banana. He didn't like that. He felt he should have been the star. And so there was tension between Crane and Dawson, which is really curious, because actually when John Carpenter came to Scottsdale to visit Bob Crane the, the week that he was murdered, um, Carpenter was playing both sides of the fence, trying not to offend Richard Dawson. So when he went back to L.A., he told Richard Dawson, I just happened to be in Phoenix on business and saw that Bob was playing at the Windmill Dinner Theater. And so I went and paid him a visit. That was a total lie. John Carpenter had planned with Bob Crane to meet Crane out on the road in Scottsdale. They made arrangements to fly him in, and Crane picked him up at Sky Harbor Airport when he arrived uh, that Sunday before Crane's murder. So they were in cahoots together, but, but Carpenter's trying to play both sides. He, he wants Dawson as a friend. He wants Crane as a friend, so he's navigating this tension that existed between the two. Oh, just amazing. So so let's talk about the... Uh... Uh, the the day of the murder, like um, what exactly happened? Um, can you paint the picture of that? Yes, um, as would be typical, Carpenter would tell his employer at that by that time in 1970 78, it was a Kai Electronics. He had left Sony. Uh, he would go out on the road ostensibly for a business trip, quote unquote. But it had nothing to do with business. Carpenter would go out on the road and meet Crane in the various cities that Crane was playing dinner theater. By this point, Hogan's was off the air. Crane was playing dinner theaters to pay the bills. He was playing in a, in a production of Beginner's Luck that he largely directed, produced, and acted in, a four-person play. Uh, it was here in Scottsdale for a one-month run. Carpenter comes to visit him in Scottsdale strictly. No, There was one afternoon of very minor business but that was it he visited a video shop up in up in north phoenix it still exists actually he comes in and he and crane cat around uh every night trying to pick up women and and go back to their usual thing they're actually having a string of bad luck together crane uh is is having sex with women on his own but he and carpenter together are not making any headway during the trip to scottsdale <laughs> <laughs> There's evidence that at this point Crane was becoming tired of Carpenter hanging around. He didn't need Carpenter's video expertise by this time because Crane had become an expert himself in this technology. It had become easier to operate, and he knew how to do it. He didn't need this guy hanging around. He even told Bob Crane Jr., his son, before the trip to Scottsdale, quote, Carpenter's becoming a pain in the ass. He's a hanger-on. I need to make changes. There's evidence that he was going to break off this relationship or at least try to create distance between the two. Carpenter comes into town. They cat around. They do their usual thing. But on this trip, and this is very interesting, Al and Kevin, Carpenter usually stayed with Crane in his two-bedroom apartment provided by the theater. But on this particular trip, Carpenter is booked in a hotel down the street 
from Crane. Crane is, again, it looks like he's trying to emancipate a little bit, get some separation from this guy. doesn't want him hanging around the apartment all the time. It made him uncomfortable. So you have this kind of fissure starting to, to break. And then the night of night slash morning of the murder, which would have been the night of June 28th going into the early morning hours of June 29th, 1978. Crane performs in his dinner theater. They get done with the dinner theater. They get out to Crane's car. They had ridden, gone together in Crane's car. They get out to the car, the Monte Carlo, and the right rear tire is flat in the parking lot, the darkened parking lot of the Windmill Dinner Theater. Kind of suspicious on the night he's murdered later, hours later, that he had a flat tire. Did someone let the, well, they determined someone let the air out. The question is, was it a prank by a kid, or was there something more nefarious? Did somebody try to disable his car so they could whack him in the parking lot? Is yeah, that well, possible? It yeah, looks figure the odds. Yeah. Well, Crane, typical Crane, instead of changing it, he didn't want to be bothered with that. He said, you know, forget it. Let's just drive to the Arco station here. It's 300 yards away. We'll just drive across the street, across Shea Boulevard, and uh, get it fixed. And they changed the tire. They drive back to Crane's apartment. He gets in a heated argument with Patty, who I've already established was Fraulein Hilda on the show, right, his wife. They were in the middle of a divorce. Crane's in a heated argument over the telephone, hangs up the phone, slams it down, comes out, says, that woman, that woman, Carpenter's in the front room, in the living room where all the camera equipment is, and Crane is fuming. He goes, let's go find some music. Let's get out of here. So they go out to Scottsdale and start to try to, you know, see if they can weave their magic and pick up women. Well, later that night, um, they meet a woman at a bar named Carol Newell, um, and uh, Crane uh, is going to meet another woman, Carolyn Beret. They all decide to meet at a coffee shop um, at Carpenter's apartment, uh, Carpenter's Hotel, the Sunburst Hotel. It's the Safari Coffee Shop. So they all meet there at the Safari. Carpenter's got this young girl, Carol Newell, who's about 20, a pretty young girl, who they met in the uh, in the club that night. Really, she was attracted to Crane and, and fascinated that she was hanging out with Colonel Hogan, right? So she goes. Exactly. Crane uh, doesn't have anybody that he, he met, so he calls Carolyn Bray, who he had been trying to date and trying to bed for the last week or two in Scottsdale. He never did. But he calls her and says, we're going to the Safari Coffee Shop. Come meet us. It's about 1 in the morning now by this time. All four of them sit there. They gab about videotape and, you know, usual stuff that Crane was interested in. And they part company. Carpenter walks out in the parking lot. The four of them walk out, kind of separated by a little bit of distance. And uh, Carpenter takes Newell back to his hotel, the Sunburst. They roll around on the bed for a little bit. She says, listen, i got to work in the morning. i got to get up. i got to get up. i got to get out of here. And Carpenter actually, as a gentleman, says, okay, he didn't push it. He drove her home. Crane at this time is striking out with Carolyn Beret in the parking lot. He's trying to get her to come to his apartment. He's trying to ask her if he could come to her apartment. She was a little older and wiser. She was in her 40s. She knew his game. She knew what he was up to. She knew that he wanted to have sex with her, and that's really what he wanted. And she said, no, no, I'm not going to do this. And she, she refused his advances. So they part company, and Carpenter drives the young girl home to her, her place, her apartment. He returns, he says, to his hotel. Crane, in the meantime, has struck out. He's gone home, and 
according to Carpenter, Crane is up late at night editing a copy of Saturday Night Fever for his 11-year-old son, I'm sorry, 7-year-old son, Scotty, who is the son by the second marriage, a young boy, trying to edit all the swear words out of Saturday Night Fever. That's what Carpenter claims when he called him. He said he called Crane from his hotel. What What are you doing? And Crane says, I struck out. How about you? I struck out. And they're talking. Crane supposedly editing Saturday Night Fever. They hang up the phone. Uh, Carpenter says he packed for the morning because he was leaving. Called him again and said, what are you doing? Same story. I'm, I'm in my boxer shorts editing Saturday Night Fever. It was discussed during these two conversations that, that Crane was not going to take Carpenter to the airport that morning. That had been the plan. Crane was going to take Carpenter to Sky Harbor, send him off to L.A., and then get back to his business. Somehow that plan, that plan changed. Carpenter ended up driving himself to the airport that morning. The question is why. Was it because they had made different arrangements, or was it because his ride had been murdered? Maybe at his hands. So Carpenter does uh, take a cab to Sky Harbor, gets back to L.A., and Crane's body is discovered about 12 hours later. Now, now it's important to to say that in that car um, they found blood and um, also brain matters from what I understand. That's right. They found, if you believe investigators, they found both. But one of those is a little bit... um, in doubt, and I'll explain. After Carpenter leaves town, he Carpenter had rented his own car because, remember, he wasn't staying with Crane on this particular trip. They had changed the arrangement. So not only did Carpenter have his own hotel room, he had his own car. So he had rented a 1978 Chrysler Cordova, blue on white. Um, in that car found a day after the murder. They tracked it down. Police tracked it down after they became a little bit suspicious about this John Carpenter guy. They tracked down the car, and when they searched it, it had blood stains on the right passenger door. Seven smears, smudges, or streaks of blood. The passenger was, door? Yeah, this is on the passenger side. Okay. Nothing on the driver's side, curiously. Nothing on the driver's side. Well, that, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to put it all together in my mind as you say it. Exactly. Why would it be on the passenger side but not on the driver's side if John Carpenter's driving the car? It's interesting. So they find the blood. Uh, it's not a lot. I mean, you've, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of it, but we certainly, when we dove into the evidence again, we've got all the photographs of it, and it's fascinating. It's not a lot of blood, but there was one pronounced streak on the very top of the door on the vinyl, blue vinyl. It's impounded DPS. Our state police agency does the testing. It comes back type B blood. Any guesses what type, blood type Bob Crane had? B. Type B. Found in only 9% of the population, a very rare blood type. So now you can imagine Carpenter propels to the top of the list of suspects. You've got, he's one of the last guys to see him. They're close friends. They've been hanging out. They're living this sordid lifestyle, videotaping sex. And now blood is found in his car. You can imagine what police are thinking. So they interview John Carpenter. They fly out to L.A. to interview him. Where is Carpenter? Carpenter's not at his apartment. He is staying with Richard Dawson Mm. in Beverly Hills. But Mm -hmm. Carpenter doesn't tell police that. 
Carpenter tells police, I'm at my mother's house 70 miles away. It'll take me a while to get back, but I'll come back and talk to you. But he's actually staying that weekend after he returned after the murder to Richard Dawson's place. That is such an interesting move, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because did he think, possibly, it, it could be completely innocent, by the way, because the people who believe John Carpenter's innocent say, you know, this is a just an innocent guy who was hanging out with his buddy for the weekend. But it does provide a little bit of a buffer from police. Here you've got a celebrity. It makes it a little bit tougher. They have to tread a little more lightly. Um, that's what investigators think, that he went there as kind of a cone of safety from the cops. Make it harder for, for them to find him, and then if they found him, you'd have this Richard Dawson star thing where they'd have to tread very lightly, right? Yeah. Well, why did he ha feel he had to lie to the police that he was at his mother's? Uh, my guess is he didn't want to get Dawson involved. He wanted to keep Dawson out of it. And maybe Dawson told him, don't tell him where you are. Don't tell him where you are. I don't want to get involved in this thing. Um, there are theories about whether Carpenter may have talked to Dawson about what happened in Scottsdale, if, in fact, he had killed Crane. <clears throat> that is in doubt, by the way, whether Carpenter is the killer. Police became very focused on John Carpenter. The issue with the blood that's interesting, and then you mentioned the brain speck in the car, tissue speck. The tissue speck was, was not discovered until years later when they got ready to put Carpenter on trial. A guy by the name of Jim Raines, who was a former Phoenix police investigator, got involved in the case. The uh, Maricopa County Attorney's Office brought him in as a very good homicide investigator to reopen this case and take a fresh look at it. When, when Raines started reexamining this case, in the 90s because Carpenter never was was brought to trial or charged early on they just didn't feel they had enough evidence yeah n no one was so no one was brought in it was a cold case and then they decided to reopen it around 1990 with the new prosecutor down here Rick Romley so Raines comes in and starts investigating the case he says I want to see the pictures from that Cordoba the photographs I want to see the evidence photos they can only find six photos of the car I mean this is the linchpin of the case and they can't find the photos. He's like, they had to have taken more photos than six. This is ridiculous. He starts moving heaven and earth trying to find these photographs because he believed there had to be more photographs. They finally located them in a DPS storage locker. And when they find them, it's a roll of 21, not six, but 21. And an investigator early on had gone through the pictures and determined what he thought was important and germane and discarded the rest. When Raines said, I want to look at all of them, he looked at them, and in one of the pictures, not only is there blood on the door, but there's a speck of something on the door. He's like, oh, my God, that's tissue. What the hell happened to that photo? Well, the, the guy who didn't know any better had discarded it. He just didn't think it was important. He didn't think it was anything. Raines is looking at it saying, this is a smoking gun. He starts going to pathologists and getting professional opinions. What is in this photo? The pathologists all agree. That is adipose tissue, fatty tissue from under the human skull. That's what they believed it was. Oh, wow. Now, if you've got brain tissue in Carpenter's rental car and blood matching the victims to blood type, I think you got your guy. Uh, it's great they've got the photograph, but they couldn't find the vial that had the tissue in it. Either it was never collected, 
which is what Dennis Borkenhagen, one of the Scottsdale investigators, told me. He thinks they flicked it off the door and didn't realize the significance. Other people think it was collected, put in a vial, but lost, misplaced in the 16 years between the murder and the time John Carpenter finally went on trial. And that was a killer with the jury. Because when Carpenter was finally brought up on charges, largely because of that photograph, that was really a key. They said, we've got, a, we've got human tissue. That's what they said at first. We've got human tissue in the car, evidence that the former prosecutors didn't have. Well, they only had a picture of it. They didn't have the actual tissue. And to the jury, and I, in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane, I spend a lot of time talking about the jury foreman, Michael Lake, who described to me in detail, and it's fascinating for readers, what went on in that jury room. Jurors who said, this guy did it, but we can't prove it. We don't have it. There's reasonable doubt. You've got blood type matching Bob Crane, but we don't know for sure that that's not type B from somebody else. We've got this tissue. It's a picture. It looks suspicious, but we don't have the actual tissue. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the judge gave the jury a Willits instruction going into deliberations saying, if the prosecution presents you with something that they don't actually have in their physical possession, you can disregard it. And that's where they were. The jury, the jury felt if they could have proved that that blood was Bob Crane's, not just type B, but his, they would have convicted him. But they didn't have it. And because Michael Lake was a, a former Marine, a by-the-book, by-the-rule guy, he was a very important figure in John Carpenter's acquittal, I believe, because he kept the jury on task. And he said, you can't go with your gut feeling. You've got to go with facts. And so they acquitted John Carpenter in 1994. The case went cold until we got back into it, dove back into it, and thought maybe we can prove what the prosecution could not 20 years later. That's, that's how I got involved. The, the blood being on the passenger side and the murder weapon, because I know they're connected. We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence taking you step-by-step step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C, it's truly criminal. Well, police believed as time went on, they weren't sure what killed Bob Crane. They knew he'd been struck twice violently. Uh, in the skull, and I want to I want to let your your listeners know this, by the way, because all of this is on the website WhoKilledBobCrane.com. I compiled the crime scene photos, and more importantly, police video never before seen of the inside of Crane's apartment and Crane's lifeless body 
lying in that bed with the cord tied around the neck and the medical examiner cutting that cord from his neck. It is forensically fascinating and critical to understanding the book because if you're reading the book, you can go to the website and look at some of this, diagrams of the apartment, the crime scene photos and the video, which give you a, a better sense of the inside of the apartment. It's kind of hard to do in a book sometimes. I, I included pictures in the book as well, but it's nice to have the website to augment that. At any rate, police, as time went on, they knew Crane had been struck twice violently in the head, caved his left side of his head in with a blunt instrument. It took, it took some time to get to the, the point where they believed that the murder weapon was a camera tripod from Crane's living room. Crane had two Quickset Junior tripods. He used one for the video camera and one to mount the still camera. One of them was missing in his apartment when police went in. It took them years to realize this, though. They didn't realize it at first. Jim Raines and Barry Vassell started pouring through the, the porn video taken in, Crane, in Crane's apartment, not only in, in Phoenix, in Scottsdale, but in Dallas, the stop before. They realized, looking at those tapes, there were two tripods in his possession, yet only one was found in the apartment when Crane was murdered. So they said, you know what? He was murdered by that camera tripod, a collapsed camera tripod. Not extended, but collapsed, where it would be like a baseball bat, right? Yes, and, and where is it now? It was never found. It was never found. Investigators are divided on what happened. I believe Carpenter dumped it out in the desert, possibly the Indian Reservation down the road. I think that's likely if he's the killer or that the killer did that. Um, or maybe a dumpster, though dumpsters in the immediate area were searched. It's also possible Jim Raines believes that if Carpenter was a killer, he may have packed it in a suitcase. This is before TSA. And packed it in a suitcase, it would have fit, and flown back to L.A. with it. Ah. That's, po that's possible. But oh. at any rate, the, the theory was, guys, that, that Carpenter put the murder weapon, the tripod, propped it up in the front passenger seat and leaned it against the passenger door, still with some blood on it, even though it may have been wrapped in a towel. And as the car moved and his brakes were applied, the tripod would have moved along, slid along that passenger door, that upper part of the passenger door, and that's what deposited the blood. That was their theory. And I was going to, how, how, how was it for you to go back and to find the blood and to be able to have it tested again? Like, what was that process? It was so unbelievable that they allowed me to do it. Um, it took months to find the original evidence. It was in 11 boxes in the county attorney's office in their evidence room. They had to find the evidence. They found the evidence boxes. And for months after that, uh, they couldn't find the blood evidence. They were, they were going through the boxes, box by box. But remember, they've got fresh cases coming in. So devoting manpower to this was a problem. Mm -hmm. They had to go through those boxes and recategorize them and inventory everything that was in them because after the trial, they dumped them all in, a, in 11 boxes, but the boxes were all jumbled. It was all mismarked. You, they, didn't put, they didn't put the stuff back in the original boxes, so it made it very confusing. So one of the guys, Mike Meislich, uh, down at the county attorney's office, he was the guy tasked with going through it and categorizing it and inventorying everything. And he finally found the vials of blood and DNA samples from the car. And that's what we sent off to Bodie Selmark Forensics, which is the same lab in Lorton, Virginia, that did OJ, 
and John Benet Ramsey and Bob Crane early on in the late 80s and early 90s before Carpenter went on trial. Everything that they did DNA-wise on, on Crane at that time, Crane and Carpenter, came back inconclusive in Carpenter's rental car. So we had to find this stuff. We finally located the vials and then treated it as any other cold case. My switch bagged up everything. We videotaped all this. We're all wearing gloves, all the original evidence in snap cap tubes that had only been tested before. The last time that stuff had been handled was by Bodie Selmark back in the 90s before Carpenter went on trial. Everything came back inconclusive. They bagged it up, sent it back to them, and my theory was this time we're going to get a hit, and we did. It just wasn't what anybody expected. It was a bombshell. And... Um, Bodie told me, because I, I was a client, I, they said, you know, Mr. Hook, we don't have a protocol for this. We have never done this for a reporter before. We're dealing with law enforcement and defense attorneys. We're not dealing with reporters. They didn't have a protocol. This is so out of the norm that we were allowed to do this. So we became essentially the client. Once the county attorney's office turned that over, we paid for the testing. Fox 10 did, and I did. And that was, uh, that was the extent of it. We became the client for that time of this evidence. And so everything that, that they reported, they reported back to me on it. Sample comes back, and, and we are expecting it is going to be Bob Crane's blood, no questions asked, in John Carpenter's car. That's not what we got. We got a DNA profile, two of them, one partial that was too degraded to make any conclusions. And the major contributor, which is known to be a man of unknown origin. We don't know who that person is or why that DNA is in that car. That was a bombshell. And I will tell you, no, no doubt about it, had they had this resolved in 1994, I do not believe they would have put John Carpenter on trial. That's how big this is. Because the defense would have said, look, you tested this stuff. It's not even Bob Crane's blood. What are you doing here? Why are you keep haranguing this John Carpenter? He did not kill this guy. And our findings cast some serious doubt on that. I know um, with murder in Scottsdale and, and Gray Smith and the theory, he had um, said a lot of things about the police and how the police didn't, um, they didn't take care of the um, the, the crime scene. crime scene, right? They let people come in and out, people used the phone, people smoked. Um, yes. And, in fact, they brought Victoria Berry back in and let her answer the phone, and she smoked inside. So this is that was what he was saying. Do we have um, any sort of um, idea on other people, or what's Victoria Berry in this? Do you think she has something to do with it? I don't. I don't think Victoria Berry had anything to do with it. Um, I, she just happened to to come to the apartment that afternoon on a, on a uh, mission that, that she and Crane had set up the day before. She was there to overdub a scene from Beginner's Luck, the play they were doing. They were to overdub her voice because there had been some audio problems. Actually, John Carpenter taped that, that scene at the windmill the week that Crane was murdered. He, he videotaped it down at the windmill of uh, Victoria Berry and Crane on stage. That footage still exists, and we've got it in our story. Um, I don't believe Victoria Berry had anything to do with it. I don't believe her husband, Alan Wells, had anything to do with it. People have talked about him. Um, I think the possibilities come down to 
is there somebody that police simply do not know about, that they completely missed it, that it's not one of his acquaintances, it's someone unknown to police that may have entered his apartment and killed him. The, the problem with the DNA, and <clears throat> I don't know if you have talked to other authors or true crime people who have discussed this, but this is an area I'm starting to explore. DNA has become so sensitive, and they can bore in so tight on DNA now. The tests can sometimes pick up what I call in the book outlier DNA. In other words, if you magnify it so much, you may not only get the car door from John Carpenter's car and DNA from blood that may have been there at one time. You might pick up DNA from an investigator who was yes. swabbing it. You might get DNA from the guy at the factory who assembled the car door. This is the problem now with DNA. It's actually complicating some things in certain cases because you can pick up things that have nothing to do with a crime that lead police and investigators down dark alleys that are going nowhere. And it can actually lead to arrests of people who aren't connected to a crime. It's, it's happened, and I talk about it in the book. Yeah, the Joan Bernie uh, Ramsey one's that way, hey, with, the, with her underwear, and they found the DNA, and now they've said it was from the manufacturer. This is it, exactly. And I think there are some parallels, frankly, guys, between the Crane case and the Jean Benet case. You're getting DNA, but what does it mean? Just getting DNA. I mean, if I put my finger on this table in front of me, I have just left my DNA there, and you can't see it. But if you tested it right now and you swabbed it, my DNA would be right there. Touch DNA. And, and this is the problem now with DNA. And I say in the book, I talk about it, that actually over time, I think the, the jury wanted DNA because O.J. Simpson was happening. They were hearing about it every night. DNA, DNA. They're waiting for it in the Crane case, but they're not getting it because everything was inconclusive. Juries are demanding this. They almost want the science to make their decision for them. And there are DNA is not the end all and be all of everything. It can it can it can mislead investigators at times. It's well, a great tool, but there is a reliance on it and an expectation, the CSI effect, that you're gonna you're going to have it, produce it for the jury, and the crime is going to be solved in thirty minutes in an episode of CSI. Yeah. It's not that simple. Yeah, you're going to get a DNA match in like 10 minutes. And it's going to be over. And, and, and to compound things even further, in a case like this where you're going back and getting old DNA, um, true, you know, you're, you're going, everybody is leaving DNA behind, but at this point it's too late to go back and get elimination samples. Well, we had the elimination samples because I have, and I've got pictures of it in the book, Who Killed Bob Crane, and it's on the website, whokilledbobcrane.com. I actually, um, with gloves, have handled a vial of Bob Crane's blood, taken at autopsy. We had Bob Crane's blood. They took, I believe, two vials, but I had, we had in evidence one, still in liquid form, can you imagine, taken the day after his murder at his autopsy. I've got it in my hands. It's sloshing from side to side, crimson, red. John Carpenter's blood, when he came out here for a police interview in Scottsdale, he gave a sample of his blood at a hospital. They asked him for it because at that time blood had been found in the car and they needed his for exclusion to make sure that it wasn't his own blood in the car. 
So we had exclusionary DNA. We had samples of blood from both Crane and Carpenter, and the blood sample, well, the DNA sample, and I'll clarify that, the DNA we got back from Carpenter's rental car from what once was a blood stain came back not Crane, not Carpenter, an unidentified male unknown. It's fascinating. Can I float a theory here? Because I'm still kind of liking Carpenter for it. Well, I know. Uh, I think that all roads lead to Carpenter until you get our test back, and then it casts some doubt. Um, here's here's the thing. I, I understand what you're saying. Do you want to do you want to go deeper on that theory? Well, um, let me put a couple of things together and see if you've already heard this story before. Per, there's a possibility that perhaps Carpenter didn't act alone, but the flat tire was a stall until this alleged accomplice could arrive. Now he's got a little bit of an alibi because he was up making time with the ladies up in the apartment. He strikes out. He leaves, you know, kind of conveniently. Next thing we know, Bob Crane turns up murdered, and Carpenter is running off to Dawson's. And I have to kind of agree with you. Maybe he had that tripod with him, with an accomplice. They head off to, you know, the airport, head off to Dawson's, Dawson, you've got to help me out, man. Check out what I've just done. You've got resources that I don't have. Can you help me? Can you help me get rid of this? It's an interesting theory. And, of course, Dawson's like, well, I don't want nothing to do with this, you fool. Sure. Get the heck out of here. Yeah, sure. Um, it's an interesting theory. I, I think the thing that cuts to your advantage on this, the accomplice idea, the thing that has always bothered me about this case. The unknown DNA. Well, the unknown DNA, but, but think about this for a minute. You've just murdered a man. If it's Carpenter, you've just murdered a man. You have some uh, low-velocity, medium-velocity blood spatter on you as well, on your person. You can clean up in Crane's apartment to a certain degree, maybe even put on one of Crane's shirts or a jacket over so that you're, you're hiding the blood. You wash your hands, all of that, but you've still got the murder weapon you've got to put in the passenger side. There's blood on the passenger side, but nothing on the driver's side. Now, we're assuming here Carpenter did this alone. He's the killer in the driver's side of the car, and they find nothing on the driver's side. Doesn't well, that strike you as odd? Yes, because he, he had an opportunity to change clothes. He may have. He may have. Well, and but maybe remember, the accomplice he, was handling the murder weapon. If he deposits the murder weapon, gets rid of it, um, takes it out of the driver or passenger side door and deposits it somewhere out in the desert or in a dumpster. He's going to get blood on him again when he gets back in the car. Why no blood on the steering wheel? Why no blood on a console or on the um, driver's side door handle? Nothing. Nothing. Oh. Well, someone else was driving. Well, this is the question. Or, but, you know, I mean, this does raise that possibility, I think. And people have theorized about this. This is what John Carpenter's attorney, Stephen Avila, believes two people were involved. He believes a woman was involved. He believes a woman had sex with Bob Crane and killed him. That's what he, he said it live on our, on our program when we unveiled this on television last November. Uh, Avila was thrilled that we had done this because he said, finally, this guy, his client, John Carpenter, has been vindicated. This proves he was not the killer. Well... Investigators want to say the DNA tests that we got back have have problems because you know you could be getting phantom DNA, 
And let me, let me explain that for just one moment. By the time we tested the, the samples of vinyl off of John Carpenter's car, we had two samples cutouts of vinyl in snap cap tubes. Those had already been tested four times back in the 80s and 90s before we got a hold of them. One of the samples had literally nothing on it. It was, nothing was detectable. It had been washed clean. Because remember, back in the 70s when they were just swabbing for blood, they would swab the whole stain and get a blood sample because they weren't looking for DNA. They didn't know about DNA. The other sample, which was a piece of felt from the middle of the car door on the, on the passenger side, decorative felt, much more porous, that had DNA on it, but not visible blood. By the time we tested it, there was no visible blood left on these samples. So all we're left with is DNA from what was once a sample that had blood on it but not visible anymore. If it was blood on that sample and we tested it, it once had blood on it, the highest concentration of DNA you can have, why did we get nothing from Bob Crane? Nothing. Wouldn't you expect we'd get something from Bob Crane if that was his blood that was once there? We got nothing. Um, not from Bob Crane. My mind is simply awash right now with Isn't these it? Amazing. And scenarios. Um, was there signs of recent sexual activity with Bob Crane? He had semen on his right thigh, dried semen on his right thigh and lower right abdomen. Um, that was present at his autopsy. Dennis Borkenhagen, who was present at the autopsy, the Scottsdale detective, urged the medical examiner to scrape it and save it. And the medical examiner... Uh, gruffly told him, and I recount this in the book, <laughs> what's that going to tell you, that he had a piece of ass before he died? Well, yes. <laughs> right. Yes. They well, wanted well, it collected. They wanted it collected because there was a theory that the killer may have masturbated over Bob Crane's body right. as a final F.U. to the victim. That, along with the cord tied around Crane's. Do we have... Do we have those samples? No. They no. Don't. They were never con collected. Dr. Jarvis, oh, who was the man. MA, who did the autopsy, told Borkenhagen, again, you know, what's that going to tell you? Nothing. So yeah. he didn't collect it. He just said, forget it, doesn't mean anything. They would have liked to have had that to know, uh, but they didn't have it. They didn't have it, and it wasn't collected, and the yeah. ME is the boss in that office. Yeah, again, so, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty because they wouldn't have known about DNA back then. Yeah. Right. It, you know, one more thing before we go here, because I know, I know a lot's been made about police um, sloppiness. It was not perfect. It was not a perfect investigation. I will say, um, yeah, letting people into the apartment, Victoria Berry, to make her statement, it was 104, 105 degrees outside. So they're trying to find a place to get her into to make her statement. They should have taken her down to the police department. They didn't. The medical examiner cutting the cord from Crane's head not that's not totally inconsistent but but shaving crane's head in his bed in the crime scene shaved his head with a straight razor around the wounds to get a better look at the wounds that did contaminate the crime scene with all that said investigators still say this has been overblown that even though it was imperfect and things happened that weren't right they basically got to the right conclusion much like the kennedy assassination for the people who believe the warren report there's all these theories out there. Nobody's ever tied it up in any coherent way that the Kennedy assassination with all of the crazy stuff that's out there, there are people, Vincent Bugliosi, one of them, who's a, who was a friend, 
um, felt that they got it right, the conclusion was correct, even though there were missteps along the way, that they got to the right conclusion, that the ballistics matched all of that. The same could be said here in the Crane case, but this DNA in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane, this really does throw a wrench in the gears. What's your thought on the second wife and their son, Scotty, and about uh, the will, you know, having the first wife and kids being removed from the will, and they were in a bad divorce at the time? Uh, Yeah, a bitter divorce, and this was Bob Crane Jr.'s theory all along that, that, um, you know, he said, Carpenter comes number one. Patty, his wife, Crane's wife, comes number two because she had money to gain. They were in the middle of a divorce. What more convenient way for her to score financially than for him to be rubbed out right in the middle of this divorce? She gets everything. Um, That was Bob Crane Jr.'s theory. Police records, uh, phone records, flight records, all of that shows that she was in Bainbridge Island, Washington, when the murder happened. Remember that she and Crane had had a phone conversation that night. The phone... The phone records back that up. They had spoken that night. She was in Washington on vacation with her son, Scotty. So she would not have had the, the, the opportunity to kill Bob Crane because she was too far away and there was no way she could have caught a flight down here. There weren't any. Um, did she put somebody up to it? People have said, did, could she have put Carpenter up to it? Carpenter and Patty did not get along. She did not like John Carpenter at all because he was the source of all evil in her mind, for her husband. He was the one, you know, chatting around and causing Bob to do all this crazy stuff, or at least aiding and abetting. So she didn't like Carpenter at all. Um, The idea that she would have suddenly befriended him and tried to get him to do this just doesn't make sense. Um, Did she hire someone else? There's just no evidence of it. Because he was going to become very, very wealthy in a matter of a few years after his death. You know, I think they felt there was some money to be made, but I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams, uh, Al, thought that Hogan's Heroes in Rerun was going to be so wildly popular. I mean, that show just got airplay for years. I don't, you know, the guy who cashed in with Sumner Redstone was with uh, Viacom. That's who the guy who really cashed in. I think they made $90 million off that at the end through reruns. Yeah, they they still play it. I watched an episode of it last week. I know, and I got to say, it's some for me. It's bittersweet when I watch it. It's still brilliant. It's brilliant comedy, but I have to suspend uh, the 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 visuals I've seen of Bob Crane's battered head, and knowing all the dark side that was going on. Um, beyond all that, though, it's important to say, you know, for his kids and and those in the family, he was just beloved. I mean, they, when he was at home, he was all in, and was a really good father by all accounts. The kids adore him. So he was like a lot of people, um, you know, the, the side you see publicly and the dark side. Yeah. I, you, I don't even look at it as a dark side. Uh, I just think that's who he was, and that's, who, that's how he, that's what he needed to exist to be Bob Crane. Right, and some say he was ahead of his time. I mean, this was, um, this was the celebrity sex video before Paris Hilton, before Pam Anderson, before... Um, you can Kim Kardashian. Oh, yeah. The list goes on. <laughs> the only difference being that Crane never intended for these to become public, and I, and you know some say he would have been mortified that they were becoming public because he didn't. He he knew that this would be um, 
career suicide if this ever got out. I mean, he wanted to be Jack Lemmon. That was his idol. He wanted to be the next Jack Lemmon. And he was kind of on that track. You know, when Hogan's was rolling, it looked like the sky was the limit for Bob Crane. But this addiction to pornography and sex and and all of the stuff he was doing, it really kind of undercut what he was doing professionally. Disney, among others, caught wind of it, and it was hurting his career. It was definitely hurting his career. Yeah. And, you know, and his son made it public, right, Scotty, for a while. He did. He did a pay-per-view site where you could watch Bob Crane's porn. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of it because it's in evidence. Um, it pretty much depicts the same thing. Uh, he compliments these women. They agree to take their clothes off, starting with their bra and their panties. He he is working it and complimenting them and telling them how beautiful they are, and it's very light. And these women, by the way, all knew they were being taped. This stuff, this equipment back then looked like it fell off the Soyuz space capsule. It's big, bulky. You couldn't miss it. And he had it all lined up in the living room with the TV facing the couch. You could not miss that this stuff was on. And the women I've seen are mugging for the camera. They're enjoying it. They're smiling. They're having a great time. So this idea that he was surreptitiously videotaping these women is nonsense. That did not happen. The only exception would be if they were too drunk to give actual consent. That is possible. But generally, they all knew they were, they were being taped and, and agreed to it. The book is called Who Killed Bob Crane? Question mark. Um, to, to order the book, the best way to do it, I think, is to go to the website, whokilledbobcrane.com. So it's the same title, whokilledbobcrane.com. But on that website, crime scene photos and video, never before seen, diagrams of Crane's apartment, the police diagrams, it gives the reader and somebody interested a real look at the evidence in this case. This is really a forensic journey. It's going back through the forensic evidence in the case, and we went through all of it, and it is like opening a time capsule into Bob Crane's world circa 1978. Again, our guest has been uh, John Hook, the book Who Killed Bob Crane. Thanks very much for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it, Al. Kevin, thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, keep up the good work. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis, and I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus, and it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets them thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus 
wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.